Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. President John F. Kennedy may be the closest thing to royalty that America has ever experienced. In fact, Kennedy's nearly three-year reign is often called the Age of Camelot. Camelot's the mythical and enchanted era of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And then it was tragically cut short by an assassin's bullet in Dallas, Texas. The Age of Camelot succumbed to the so-called Kennedy Curse. You see, Kennedy's sister, Rosemary, had a botched lobotomy in 1941, was in a mental hospital the rest of her life. And Kennedy's older brother, Joe, died in a plane crash, World War II, 1944. And another plane crash claimed the life of his sister, Kathleen, 1948. And then his sister-in-law, Ethel's parents, died in another plane crash, 1955, And then Kennedy's infant son, Patrick, died only three months before his dad in 1963. And then only seven months after the assassination, Kennedy's brother Ted almost died in another plane crash. Ted spent five months in the hospital recovering. And after Ted's crash, his brother Bobby said, I think somebody up there doesn't like us. And yet, less than four years later, Bobby announces for president himself and then is shot in Los Angeles, California, instantly killed. Now the curse is afflicting the next generation. Kennedy's nephew, David Kennedy, died of drug overdose, 1984. Another nephew, Michael Kennedy, died of skiing accident in 1997. Then Kennedy's, uh, the president's son, JFK Jr., along with his wife, Carolyn, die in a plane crash, 1999. Niece, Mary Kennedy, died by suicide in 2012, and the list just keeps on going. The Kennedy curse is so well documented that even secular biographers have pondered whether it could have anything to do with the unbridled lust for immorality that seems to consume the Kennedy men. Since Kennedy's assassination, what was hidden at the time has all come out in the open. President Kennedy, his, brother, his father Joe, his brothers Bobby and Ted, all of them serial adulterers. Were the chickens coming home to roost? After all, God's word is very clear about this. You can't miss it. Proverbs 5.20, it says, Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all of his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die. For lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. In the next chapter, Proverbs 6, it says, A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. The next chapter, chapter 7, it says, All at once, 
He followed an adulteress like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. Then a few verses later, the Bible says, the house of an adulteress is a highway to the grave, heading down to the chambers of death. Is God just blowing smoke here, you know? Idle threats? (laughs) That's not what the Bible teaches. Make no mistake about it. The Bible says, Numbers 32, be sure your sin will find you out. You see, It really doesn't matter if others discover your sin or not. Either way, sooner or later, your sin will discover you. You can't run from its consequences. Sin carries within itself the power to pay the sinner back and the price tag. It's hell. It's a dangerous thing to play with sin. It can't be tamed, can't be outrun, can't be shaken off. No matter how safe you think you are, your sin will find you out. That's why God gave us the gift of consequences. Consequences are really God's protection. The Apostle Paul put it like this, Galatians 6, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps whatever he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature is going to reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit of God from the Spirit will reap eternal life. In Genesis 3, we see this principle at work in living color. When Adam and Eve disobey, God uses the gift of consequences to drive them back into fellowship with their Creator. If he hadn't done that, they would be eternally lost. In Genesis 3, we see four consequences that Adam and Eve endured after they sinned. And today, we wrestle with these same consequences when we sin. And as you shall see, they are actually blessings in disguise. The first consequence is shame. As you may recall, Adam and Eve were only given one command, one thing they had to do. Of all the trees in the garden, they were not to eat the fruit of how many trees? One. Should have been easy peasy, right? But they blew it anyway. They ate the forbidden fruit. Notice what happens next. Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Five seconds after eating that fruit, I'll bet they realized, man, we have made a poor choice. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced the embarrassment of wondering, Why on earth did I do this? Your mind, your heart are filled with shame. You know, as parents, we often see this with our kids when they're caught red-handed, don't we? The blushing, the 
confusion of mind, the downward casting of the eyes, the slack posture, the lowered head. Can you imagine how this sense of shame was magnified for Adam and Eve? Unlike you or I, they had a taste of paradise. They lived in a perfect world, unstained by sin, perfect minds, perfect bodies. Best of all, they had a perfect relationship with God. But they royally blew it. Big time. Genesis 5, 5 tells us Adam lived for 930 years. Imagine that. 930 years of wondering what might have been. Imagine how Adam and Eve must have, must have felt after one of their sons murdered the other son. What was going through their minds as they watched mankind begin this long, slow, tragic descent into a moral sewer that was so bad, God decided he had to destroy the whole works and start over again. There in the paradise of the Garden of Eden, they must have known instantly we have made a tragic miscalculation. Immediately it dawned on them, hey, we're naked. And they reached for fig leaves to cover themselves. And when they heard the Lord coming on his daily walk, they ran and hid. Some psychologists make a distinction between shame and guilt. Shame, they say, is when you fall short of someone else's expectations. Well, guilt is when you fall short of the expectations you have for yourself. But folks, the most important thing is when you fall short of the expectations God has for you. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. The Greek word is hysterio. Jesus uses this same word in Mark 10.21 after the rich young ruler had insisted that he'd kept all the commandments. Jesus said, No, you haven't. <laughs> there is still one area where you fall short. Hysterio. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. In reality, the rich young ruler had broken the very first commandment, hadn't he? Thou shalt have no other gods before, before me. See, the, tr the young ruler made the tragic miscalculation of valuing his money more than God. And the Bible says the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, God intends for our shame to drive us to God, not away from him. I'll bet the rich young ruler was sad for the rest of his life, but he wasn't sad enough to let that sadness and shame drive him to God. How about you? Will you let your shame and guilt drive you to God? God came looking for Adam and Eve, didn't he? And God's going to do the same for you because he wants to be reconciled to you. 
That's why it's so important that we don't hide our sin. James 5.16 says, confess your sins. Get them out in the open. Confess to one another so that you may be healed. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, we can be reconciled once again to our Heavenly Father but it starts first with confession. This was the struggle for Adam and Eve, which we see as we move on to the second consequence they endured after they sinned. The second consequence was sorrow. First they had shame, then they had sorrow. Look at verse 9. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman, hey, the woman, the woman that God, you put her here with me. She is the one that gave me some fruit from the tree. And I ate it. Adam and Eve clearly had sorrow for their sin. But the question was, were they sorry for what they did? Or were they sorry that they got caught? Big difference, isn't there? You see, King David got it right in Psalm 51 after the prophet Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. In verse 3, he tells God, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David could have blamed Bathsheba. <laughs> you know, why did you take a bath on top of your rooftop. You know, you shouldn't have been doing that. You were tempting me. Or David could have blamed Uriah, her husband, the soldier, for not going home to his wife so that she, he would sleep with her and she would assume that the child was his. But David didn't do that. David owned up to his sin. This reminds me of the old Alka-Seltzer commercial. It was one of my favorite commercials. Ralph eats too much pizza. You remember that one? He sits up in bed. You might have been there. <laughs> I've been there like that. And uh, Sue's oversleeping, you know. And his, so his wife is sleeping. And he's sitting there up in bed and he says... I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Remember that commercial? And his wife says, you ate it, Ralph. You ate the whole thing. And he keeps whining and whining. And finally she, is, she says, take two Elka-Seltzer, Ralph. Ralph had no one to blame but himself, right? You ate it, Ralph. And yet, how often are we like the Hennepin County Sheriff who ran off the road after drinking too much and his first words to the officers arriving on the scene was, I wasn't drinking. I wasn't driving. 
Someone else was driving this car. Now, there was one problem with that. (laughs) He was all alone. Now, to his credit, Sheriff Hutchinson, sort of, came to his senses and took at least some responsibility for his actions. And yet, before we're too hard on the poor sheriff, how often have we done exactly the same thing? How often have you tried to blame others for your own shortcomings? Oh, it's human nature, isn't it? First, Adam passes off the blame to Eve. What does Eve do? Oh, it's the serpent God. The serpent, she passes the blame to the serpent. And the serpent, I'll bet he just sat there with a big smile on his face. Got you guys. When we sin, God allows us to feel sorrow. But he intends for that sorrow to drive us back to him. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And it leaves no regrets. You don't have to keep going through your life waking up in the middle of the night and saying, why did I do that? You can have the slate wiped clean. You can be forgiven. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar. And uh, your mouth is full of cookies and mom comes up and taps you on the shoulder and asks you what you've been doing and you quickly mumble after swallowing the cookies, sorry mom, but how sorry were you? This leads right into the third consequence that Adam and Eve had to endure, and that was suffering. Do you notice how the Lord is gradually turning up the temperature? You know, if shame doesn't get their attention and sorrow doesn't get their attention, how about suffering? Verse 16, Eve is informed about the consequences she will have to endure for her sin. And God says to her, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, Eve was given two major consequences. The first is childbirth. You know, it's a good thing our sin nature is going to be gone when we get to heaven. Otherwise, I can imagine a a line of ladies lined up to meet Eve and ready to give give her a piece of their mind, right? The second consequence that Eve endured was marital strife. Anyone who's married can relate to this. That person that you love more than anyone else in the world also has the potential to drive you crazy. But get this, you do have a choice in the matter. Instead of letting your marital differences drive you crazy, let them drive you to Jesus. You know what? The first step is prayer. That's why Pastor Jeff and I, we talk about this all the time. Couples, you gotta be praying together. Every day. Now look at the consequences that Adam was given. 
In verse 17, God says to him, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Now, for every lady who would like to have words with Eve, there's going to be a man who'd like to have words with Adam. Men, does your work ever drive you crazy? Do you ever come home at night and you're grumbling about your coworkers and you're frustrated that something wasn't working right and you're uptight about this and that and and you know you toss and turn and you're 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 mentally trying to solve whatever problem you were facing that day. Friends, instead of letting those work issues drive you crazy, let them drive you to Jesus. After all, that's the purpose of suffering. The Bible says, 1 Peter 1.6, Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine. When we're in pain... God gets our attention. It sure is true for me. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Suffering will make you bitter or better. Many Christians have found it easier to endure suffering when they can clearly see that their suffering is due either to something foolish they did or something sinful that they did. At least I have some inclination of why I'm going through this. I mean, the Kennedy family brought a lot of hardship upon themselves. Many, many times they sunk their own ship. Immorality often will lead to a host of other sins. You ever notice that you don't... you you. If you if there's immorality, there's always deception. Always. And deception leads into a host of other sins. And it wrecks havoc on a family system because nobody trusts anybody. But other times we suffer and we really don't know why. And we 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 cry out to God, why God? Why am I going through this? That was the case of Job in the Bible. Job lost his family, then he lost his wealth, then he lost his health, and his friend says, Job, you must have sinned big time to be punished the way you have. But it wasn't the case. In fact, the Bible says that Job was blameless before the Lord. That doesn't mean he never sinned, but when he did fall short, he quickly confessed his sins and repented, and as best as he could, made things right. And yet, poor old Job, he lost everything. And it's hard to understand. And many of you know exactly what this feels like. Why did I get cancer? Lord, I'm one of the good guys. You ever said that to God? (laughs) Why did I lose my job? Why was I in this accident? Why did my business fall apart? Why, why, why? The Bible doesn't always give us an answer. But you know what? 
the Bible does give us a promise. And it's Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's an astounding promise. And it is well worth meditating on because God sees everything. Nothing surprises him. And he will ultimately make right every wrong we experience. And God assures us the hidden things will be made known. You ever have somebody just run over you and, you know, there doesn't seem to be any consequences? God sees everything. And all of that will come out in the open someday. Have no doubt about it. The reason we suffer may not always be revealed, but the purpose for our suffering is to refine our character. And it's to drive us to God. Is that true of you? I pray that it is. Now this brings us to the fourth consequence that Adam and Eve had to endure, and that is separation. So they went from shame to sorrow, and they went from sorrow um, and, and kept going down until we got now to, uh, to suffering and then to separation. Verse 23 says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I think those are the saddest verses in all the Bible. It's the tragedy of paradise lost. Adam and Eve had it all, threw it all away. Can you imagine them sitting outside this beautiful garden, no longer able to enjoy its beauty? And worse yet, they were no longer able to make to take these, these daily walks with their creator. You see, back in verse 8, we're told that the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the verb, the Hebrew verb that is used here, points to a habitual practice. Each day in the late afternoon or the early evening, when a light breeze began to blow and the heat began to subside, the Lord God would take a walk in the garden. And he would walk with Adam and Eve, and they would talk as one friend to another. Can you imagine that? But now those days were gone. And instead of a lush garden with all of these delicious fruits and vegetables in abundance, now they scratched and clawed and had a barren earth that was cursed by God. Thorns and thistles were everywhere as they're plowing the soil and planting their crops and wiping their brow as they labored. They had to be thinking all the time, oh, what might have been. I close with this. The question has often been asked, were Adam and Eve saved? Did they make it to heaven? Will we someday be able to talk to them and ask them, what were you thinking when you ate the fruit? <laughs> it's interesting that the Bible never clearly states that they make it, made it to heaven. So we, we cannot say for, 
sure, 100% for uh, certainty. And yet there are many reasons for being hopeful. The first reason is because Adam named his wife Eve in verse 20. Because, he says, she would become the mother of all the living. And this tells us that Adam and Eve were prepared to obey God's commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The second reason we can be hopeful is because of Eve's statement in Genesis 4, verse 1. When she gave birth to her first child, Cain, the NIV translates this as, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Some Bible scholars have translated this, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. This unusual wording seems to indicate that Eve thought that her son Cain was the offspring, he was the Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent, as was promised back in Genesis 3.15. The third reason is what happens when Eve gives birth to her son Seth. In verse in uh, Genesis 4:24 she says God has granted me another child in place of Abel. And this is another statement of faith. She is trusting God for another baby. And then the fourth reason we can be hopeful is that Adam and Eve that Adam and Eve made it to heaven is because they taught their children. They taught them who God is and what he requires of them. They knew what God had done for them in Genesis 3.21. They knew that God had killed an animal and that a blood sacrifice had been made for their sin. They watched this happen and they taught this to Cain and Abel, which explains why Cain is held accountable for his disobedience in Genesis 4 verse 5. And Adam and Eve also taught Seth about the Lord. And he taught his son Enoch, Enosh. And he taught his son Kenan. And he taught his son Mahalalel. And he taught his son Jared. And he taught his son Enoch. And he taught his son Methuselah. And he taught his son Lamech. And he taught his son Noah. And so a godly line was handed down from generation to generation. Now, I believe we're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven. And I hope, instead of chewing them out, that we'll be able to thank them for passing on a godly heritage that went from Seth on to his son and his son and his son all the way down to Noah. In other words the consequences that Adam and Eve endured in Genesis 3, the shame they endured, the sorrow, the suffering, the separation, all of that was not in vain. Instead, they allowed that shame and sorrow and suffering and separation, they allowed it to drive them back into the arms of their creator. Is that true of you? Consequences are actually God's protection. God allows us to experience consequences, not to curse us, but to bless us. Consequences are intended to drive us back into the arms of our creator and maker and redeemer 
and friend. Is that true in your life? I hope that it is. <laughs>